Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you've ever had to lead anything, if you've ever been entrusted with any kind of authority, you've failed people. You have failed to do the job that was given to you. If you've ever been led, if you've ever looked up to leaders, modeled yourself on them, followed them as examples, you've been failed by leaders. Those leaders have disappointed to you. They have not lived up to the vision that they cast. They have not done the things that they told you to do. Leaders have failed you. You have failed others as leaders. We know what this is like, and in our text we see a series of tests of leadership. Some of those tests seem to go better than others. But it's interesting to see the way that the the crisis created by the entry of the people of God into the promised land is responded to by all these different types of leaders. At the beginning of the story, we see our first test of leadership, and that's a test for the kings of Canaan, the various factions. We think of this land as, as one land, but the reality in that time is it was divided up into many different principalities, every city having its own ruler, its own tribe of people. And as you can imagine, those people, there were rivalries between them. There was conflict between them. As a result of that, when Israel marches across the river, we see them defeating one army after another, one city after another, piecemeal. They're defeating their army or their enemies in detail. But now something interesting happens. The remaining kings of the land, when they see what's happening, they act. They rise above their differences. All of the squabbling, all of the territorial friction that has kept these nations apart, these kings apart, they put all of that aside and they come together. They unite with one common cause to fight against Joshua and Israel. They will now combine all their strength in order to oppose Israel. And that tells us something about these leaders, which is that they took the threat seriously. When they saw what was happening to other people, they took action. They didn't want to share the same fate. And so those leaders, they humbled themselves. They put aside whatever concerns had had driven them apart, and they came together. They took the threat seriously. But we could also argue that they didn't take the threat seriously enough because the way that they responded to it was by attempting to uh, rise up by force. They didn't take the threat seriously enough in the sense that they still thought they could win by force of arms. But we're going to take those leaders and we're going to set them aside for a moment. We're going to deal with them in the next chapter. We find out how this alliance fares. Because while some leaders of Canaan were discovering their strength, others were a little more cunning than that. The leaders of Gibeon have a different approach. While everybody else in the land is forming this massive alliance against Israel, the Gibeonites, they're smart. They see what's gone on, and they they think to themselves, I don't think this alliance is a very good idea. I think if we join it, we'd be on the wrong side of the battle. So they don't join the other kings. Instead, they attempt to join Israel. But they do it through deception. They attempt to unite with Israel by deception. 
No, it's a smarter response, ultimately speaking. They're not going to go up against the army of the Lord. They're going to unite themselves to it. But that deception is kind of interesting. Cunning is the word that is used in our text. These were smart guys. They were deep thinkers. They came up with a cunning plan. And we get some interesting details of the way they do this. So the cluster of cities that Gibeon represents is not far from Jerusalem. And about three days, as we learn later, from where uh, Gilgal is, where the, the, the army of Israel is based. So they're actually quite close. But they send a party and they make it look as if they've come from a very long distance. And you get all of these great details of how they do it. They go through and they get worn out clothing and worn out sandals. They get crumbly bread. They get wineskins that have burst and been repaired in the past so that when they arrive after their three-day journey, it looks like they've just crossed the Gobi Desert or something. They've come from very far, and they've just barely made it on a shoestring, and now like the food they have is not worth eating. They've come from a very far distance. So that when they're challenged on where they come from, they can offer evidence. They say, here's our bread. Look, it's crumbly. It's crumbly. Look, look at our sandals. They're worn out. Our clothes are worn out. Look at our wineskins. They've burst. Like this bread was fresh from the oven when we left. These wineskins, they were new. And now look at them. Obviously, we've come from a very long distance. It's where some leaders discover strength. Some leaders get clever. They look for a way to deliver their people through their intelligence, through their craftiness. Those are two tests of leadership, but there's also a third. It's where you have leaders discovering strength. You have leaders who are discovering their craftiness. In Israel, we have some leaders as well. The leaders of the congregation, they're called the elders of Israel. And what are they doing? Basically sleeping on the job. Sleeping on the job. They're not paying attention, we're told. They're lax in their duties. These people come to them, and they ask to enter into a covenant with them, a treaty. In Deuteronomy, Israel has actually been commanded not to do this. They've been told you can't enter into treaty alliances with any of the people inside Canaan. Now, that would be one way to conquer a place, to go in and, and build alliances and, and turn people against one another. You can't do that, Moses has said. This isn't permitted. So they're being asked to do something that they've been forbidden to do. And the people come to them, and at first, they do a little due diligence. They ask a few questions. Well, how do we know that you come from where you say you do? They're shown the evidence of it, and then they say, all right, well, let's, let's make peace. What the Gibeonites want to do is they want to join Israel as an ally. Essentially, what they're saying is we'll covenant together, and then our army will become your army. We'll fight together against your enemies. And so they enter into this alliance But there's an interesting note that we're told along the way, which is that they don't seek counsel from the Lord. This is in verse 14 and 15. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And you get this kind of in passing, just as a side note. And by the way, they didn't seek counsel with the Lord. They didn't ask God. They acted in his name. They made a covenant in his name, but they didn't include him in the process. And as a result of that, they were deceived because those leaders were lax in their duty 
they were deceived. And their failure actually creates another test, a test of followership, because they put the people to the test. Because the people discover what's happened. They realize they've entered into this covenant on uh, false grounds, and they're naturally inclined to turn against the ones who've deceived them. And now the leaders, the same ones who did not do what they should have done, are forced to come in and say, hey, everybody, we should do what's right in this situation. We've sworn by the Lord we need to keep this vow despite the circumstances. We need to do this. Yet these elders don't have a lot of credibility. Right? They, they've sacrificed a lot of the, the moral uh, force that their argument would have had if they hadn't been so lax in the first place. So they put the people in a position where the people have to listen to the elders who have just failed them. They have to take spiritual advice from men who've not acted with spiritual wisdom immediately prior to this. The people are put to the test, and the people of Israel turn out to do better at this than the leaders of Israel. Because although they're faced with this deception, they've now been allied to people who lied to them They listen to their leaders, and they go along with it. So lessons here. There's lessons here for leaders, lessons here for us as the people of God. Let's think about leadership first. Uh, Lessons for leaders. Don't let success go to your head. The elders of Israel, you could understand their confidence. If you ask yourself, why didn't they seek counsel from the Lord? If you look at their immediate history, you could understand why they might have felt pretty confident, why they maybe felt they didn't need to seek counsel from the Lord, because this thing that they were leading, it was going pretty good. There had been some some rough spots. After Jericho, there was that whole problem that led to the defeated AI, but they'd gotten things squared away. At the end of chapter 8, there was that great covenant renewal service before God, and now the people of Israel are once again winning. They are putting fear into the hearts of the people all around them. Things are going their way, and the leaders probably feel responsible, as if some credit is due to them for their leadership. They feel competent to act in this situation. But the Lord had given them authority. And success had made them think that they didn't need his counsel to use that authority well. They were confident operating on their own. After all, why would God make me a leader if I weren't capable of making decisions like this? If I weren't good at this sort of thing, why would God have raised me up? Why would he have entrusted to me the things he's entrusted to me if this wasn't, you know, my skill set, my thing? So you can understand how success breeds confidence, and that confidence convinces the men in authority that they're responsible for what's happened, and that maybe they don't need to take counsel. I imagine what's happened in that situation, and not only in that one, is there's been a confusion between authority and power what it means to have authority, and what it means to have power. It's true that these were the leaders. They're described as the leaders of the congregation. These are the elders of Israel. They have authority over the people. This is actually their decision to make. They're not wrong 
to exercise that authority. They're supposed to. They're supposed to lead the people in making these kinds of choices. The thing is, having the authority didn't give them the power to do it. They had the authority to do the job, but they didn't have the power to do it well. For that, they needed God. They actually needed him. Because on that day, when the elders of Gibeon and the elders of Israel were matching wits, the elders of Gibeon were smarter. The elders of Gibeon had thought farther along. They were better at their job. They were better leaders in that moment. They had anticipated the problems, and they had provided for them. They had planned for them, and Israel was caught flat-footed. Its leaders were unprepared. But, but, just as the God of Israel had bested the strength of Jericho, the God of Israel could best the wisdom of Gibeon. If he'd been asked, if he'd been consulted. The irony is you have within your camp this source of all knowledge, this one who cannot be deceived. Nobody goes before God and tricks him into an alliance. If they had gone to God and said, what should we do? They would not have been deceived. It was as simple as that. If they had recognized that having the authority doesn't mean you don't need the power. Having the authority doesn't make you independent of the God who gave it to you. All they had to do was ask. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And he talks about the conflict between us is you don't have what you want. You desire things, you don't get them. And so you turn to violence, you turn to murder, but you do not have because you do not ask. Because you do not go to the one who has the power to grant every good thing. As simple as that. They did not have because they didn't ask. The lesson for leaders is whatever authority you have, whatever success you've had, whatever respect you have from others, never forget that you rely on God. In fact, the more that people depend on you, the more that you need to rely on God, not the less. The more reliant people are on you, the more you must rely on God. When God gives authority, that authority, the weight of it should humble us, not inflate our egos. When God grants authority to lead, we ought to be deeply humbled. And a sign of that humility is this constant desire to seek counsel from God. When the elders of this church meet to discuss things, we always start by praying whether we need it or not. You may see the problem with what I've just said. Sometimes we pray because we're facing really important things, and sometimes we pray because you're supposed to pray at the beginning of the meeting. Turns out we always need it. We always need it. We don't always realize it, but we do always need it. And the more conscious we are of the weight of the authority, the more we rely on God, not less, the more we have to rely on him. Humility shows itself and constantly seeking the counsel of God. There's wisdom in that counsel. And Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. King James says, With a multitude of counselors, they succeed. If you can't have a multitude of counselors, there's one in particular. It's always good to consult.
the source of counsel. Where do we turn to for wise counsel? We turn to the Lord. In Psalm 1, the righteous man is said to meditate on God's law day and night, to turn constantly to the word of the Lord, to take delight in his law. So constantly turning to God for counsel, constantly seeking that counsel in the word that he's given us, living in it, breathing it. That's the sign of humility. Authority in the church, authority in the kingdom, let's say, works differently than authority does in the outside world. We are accustomed to the way that when we put people in power, the power goes to their head and the power inevitably gets abused. But it's not meant to be that way in the kingdom. It's not meant to be that way in the church. If you have a really long memory, you may remember a couple of years ago when we preached through Ephesians. There's a sermon in that series that you can go back and listen to called A New Approach to Power, where Paul turns the expectations of power upside down and says, now if you have power, now if you have authority, you're meant to wield it as Christ does. You're meant to emulate Christ in that role. And what does Christ do? How does Christ love the church? By giving himself up for it through self-sacrifice. So the way to use authority in the kingdom is not to build yourself up, but to give yourself away, to live and to work for the benefit of others and to follow the will of God. The Christ we're meant to emulate says constantly, I didn't come here to do my own will. I seek the will of the Father. I've come down from heaven, he says in John 6, 38, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if the elders of Israel had had a little taste of that on that day, the last thing in the world they could have done was enter into a covenant in the name of God without bringing God into it at all. Because they would have recognized that their charge had come from him and could only be executed with his power. So don't let success go to your head. There's a lesson here too for God's people though. The lesson for leaders, don't let success go to your head. The lesson for God's people is don't let the failure of leaders turn you against God. It says in our text that the people murmured against their leaders. They murmured against the elders. And they had a reason to. Oftentimes when you see something like this, oh, people, they're murmuring against their leaders. Uh, It's a bad thing. You know, Moses sometimes will do some hard thing and the people will grumble about it and say, oh, you should have left us in Egypt. We would have been better off ruled by Pharaoh, that sort of thing. And in that moment, we don't sympathize with them. We say, how could you think such a thing? But in this case, you see their point, right? You see their point. The same elders who got them into this alliance are now telling them, now the pious thing to do is not to break this vow we've made before God. We have to abide by this agreement that your elders entered into without doing what they ought to have done. And the people murmur. Why are these people leading us? Why are these the the elders? Do these guys even know what their job is? We need to repeal them and replace them with somebody who will pay attention. That's the test that they're put under, the test. 
hypocrisy in leaders, moral failure, negligence, not to mention abuse of power, which we see constantly. These are all good reasons to be disappointed in leaders. And to say, well, suck it up. You've got to follow your leaders, right or wrong. That doesn't help. To pretend like we don't see the problem, the elephant in the room doesn't help. This kind of failure is nothing new. It's nothing new in their day. And certainly in our time, you look back at the history of the church and look for examples of hypocrisy, of moral failure, of negligence. Sometimes you're just grateful for mere negligence in leaders. Well, he was no good at the job, but at least he wasn't that bad of a guy. The history of the church is full of these things. We've all been let down by leaders that we trusted to do what was right and to do it the right way. We've been disappointed again and again. And the failure of its leaders to do right is one of the greatest arguments against Christianity. Ever try to convince someone to unite themselves to Christ to be part of this faith? There are plenty of reasons to uh, hit the pause button on that. And most of them are, are popular names. Celebrity, pastors, leaders in the church. People whose example makes the elders of Israel on that day look actually pretty competent. The wider culture looks at the church and faults its leaders because they are so out of step with what seems to be moral that the leaders of the church lead people away from what the rest of society considers to be good. Many disaffected Christians fault church leaders for something much worse than that, for not living up to the moral expectations of their own faith. Put it simply, not practicing what they preach. And they have a point. We can go along and say, hey, you shouldn't criticize the church. Hey, don't bash fellow Christians. We're all in this together, but they have a point. If the people entrusted with responsibility who are expected to do what is right don't do right, do we not say anything about it? Do we make excuses for it? No. You have to be honest. The people had good reason to murmur, but not to break their vows. And that's the other side of the test. They had good reason to murmur, and when we have good reason to murmur, oftentimes there's a voice inside our head that says, you know what, now all bets are off. You were committed to this thing. You were going to be a good person. You were going to follow all the rules that they told you you had to follow, but they don't even follow the rules, so all bets are off. And now forget about it. Now I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You can't bind me to some vow that turns out to have been made under false pretenses. And the leaders are placed in this, this, this hard situation of having to argue that, yes, even though we did this without consulting God, we did it in his name, and if we break it, if we violate it, we're not just getting back at some people who made us look like fools. We are actually dishonoring the name of our God. We can glorify him by keeping the vow we made in his name 
even though we wouldn't have made it if we knew then what we know now. Which is a kind of morally complex place to find yourself with a lot of uh, conflicting feelings. Which is why it's interesting looking at commenters on this text to find there's almost universal praise for the people in this situation. Even from commenters you would expect to really you know, focus in on that murmuring and say something like, well, the leaders failed, but the people failed too. Because the people, although they were tested, and although a lot of them, I'm sure, felt they had good reason not to listen to their leaders after their leaders had failed them, the people put their faith, their faithfulness to God above their disappointments with their leaders. Their loyalty ultimately was not to their leaders, but to the God in whose name the vow had been made so that their obedience could glorify God all the more because they had to rise above the failure of their leaders in order to honor the vow. So they actually did something rather wonderful here, if you think about it, rather wonderful. Their disappointment was a test. And unlike a lot of people in this passage who were tested, they seem to pass. And the failure of leaders always puts people to the test. It always does. When our fallen sinful leaders demonstrate their fallenness, either we take this as a license for our own unfaithfulness, or we continue to be faithful to God despite the faithlessness of people who've disappointed us. How we respond to that test reveals where our hope lies. If we respond by saying, oh, you failed me and now my faith is done. That suggests that the hope was in the men, that the hope was in the leaders and the example, not in the one that the leaders imperfectly pointed to. These tests arguably are important tests because they remind us where our hope ought to be. I don't say to justify the failure of leaders, but I think some of the good that comes from the evil that leaders do when they fail is that it reminds us that our hopes are not in them in the first place and forces us to look to God alone. There's a final lesson in the story, and it's a lesson, I'm going to say, for seekers. The Gibeonites qualify. The Gibeonites are people who found themselves in a very polarized world and made a very unusual move. They didn't unite with all of the other enemies of Israel. Instead, they sought to unite themselves with Israel. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the way they sought to do it. The lesson is, don't come to God on your own terms. If you come to God, you have to come on your knees. Now Joshua sees that the failure of the leaders of Israel, himself included, has put the people to the test. And he sees that they have to keep this covenant vow. They have to maintain this obligation because they are bound to it because they've sworn in the name of God. But he also sees 
that the Gibeonites, to whom they are now in this covenant relation, have themselves violated this pact that they've entered into by entering into it through deception. So while they will keep the covenant and the life that was promised will be given, there is a curse. There's a punishment or a consequence for the way it was done, for the deception that was involved. And that's where we get this this note towards the end, that the Gibeonites will be received, but they will also be assigned these lowly tasks. They will be cutting wood. They will be gathering water. They will be serving around the altar. Like that's the task that they will have. And when the book of Joshua is written down, it is the task that they still have. And if you flash forward to the days of King David, it is the task they still have. Even then, King Saul tries to wipe them out and David does justice to them. This is much later in time. So this is a state of affairs that continues. Despite their cleverness, the elders of Gibeon failed too. They managed to unite their people to Israel. They managed to get life for their people, but what they'd meant to do was make their people allies to the cause. They had meant to unite them truly as equals to Israel, and instead they had delivered them into servitude. They were smart. They knew better than to approach God with swords in their hands. But they thought they could maybe approach him with lies on their lips and get away with it. And that turned out not to be the case either, that the deception that they used would not be blessed. That, too, was a failure. You can't come to God on your own terms. It's good to want to come to him. It's good to not want to unite yourselves with the kings of Canaan, to to fight against Joshua and Israel. That's good. But you can't come to him with deception. You can't come to him any other way than on your knees. When they speak up for themselves, they make it sound like they had no other option. It was either death or this. They had to do this, otherwise they would have died. But we already know from the story that there was another option. There was faith. Rahab and her family had been accepted into the covenant community as equals. Rahab becomes part of the genealogy through whom Christ comes accepted as equals because they came by faith. They didn't come into Israel and then get assigned some sort of task of servitude. They had come through faith. They had humbled themselves. They had come on their knees, not through deception, but in the only way that you can come. And they don't seem to have been alone. As we saw in chapter 8 at the covenant renewal service, when Israel is divided up and the, the, the two sides are shouting out those blessings and curses to one another, that we're told that there are the, the children of Israel there, the, the women, the children, and also the strangers who lived among them. So there must have been others as well who found themselves within the covenant community. There was another option. There was another way to come if the elders of Gibeon had had eyes to see it. They acknowledge God but they didn't come to him on his terms. They came to God on their own terms and it didn't work because it never does. We live in an age of doubt. We live in an age of doubt, but paradoxically, it's a different kind of age of doubt than than the one we lived in before. It's not an age of sort of uh, 
let's see, modern scientific rational doubt. There's this odd mixture of doubt and seeking. I'm spiritual but not religious. I think there's something, there's some kind of something that I'm looking for to give meaning to things. Well, what is that something you're looking for? Hard to say. Even harder now than it would have been before because so much of the language we might have used uh, to describe that something has become problematic, become hard to use in the public square for fear of, of people sneering or smiling at the idea that you still believe in such metaphysical things. But that longing for something, that thing that, that turns doubters into seekers, that flows from our common humanity. It flows from our having been made in the image of God. So that's something we can sympathize with in all of our fellow human beings, whether they uh, share our creed or not, we can see something we have in common with them, an emptiness that longs to be full. And sometimes it feels compassionate in, in, in seeing that, that common humanity to, to say, well, I'm sure whatever it is you're looking for, that's what's right for you. And whatever it is you find, that's what you were meant to find. That's what's good enough. That's the, the something that you must have needed. It's so good that anyone's seeking that you want to just encourage that and, and not, not pour water on that fire. To encourage people to seek that something and to seek it on their own terms. The lesson here is that that doesn't work. That it's not possible to approach God on any other terms but his. There is only one way to approach him. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yet whoever comes to me, he adds, I will never cast out. We must come to him on our knees. When we come to him, we are never cast out, never turned aside, never consigned to mere servitude, but embraced as equals, embraced as brothers and sisters, as fellow heirs of Jesus Christ. It's not compassionate to contradict Jesus when he says, I am the way. It means that the only way to find what you're looking for is to find it on your knees. Leaders will fail you. Not that they might, they will fail you. They will disappoint you. You will fail yourself. Your strength will prove to be not strong enough. Your intelligence, your cleverness, as much as it is, will turn out to be not enough. You will meet your match in strength and wisdom. But Christ will never fail. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.